Al Jazeera podcast. Hi, this is Malika Bilal. We're doing something new starting this week on The Take, joining you now every Saturday and Sunday. We're calling it Another Take, and we'll be revisiting stories we've done that are in the news again. This week, of course, the news was dominated by what's happening in Israel and Gaza. On October 7th, Hamas breached Israel's southern border with Gaza in a deadly and unprecedented attack. Israel responded with a declaration of war and a series of deadly airstrikes on the Gaza Strip, a territory Hamas controls politically. So what is Hamas? And what do you need to know about it? We answered that question here back in 2021. And it's worth another listen now. So here it is from June 14th, 2021. Heads up, none of the dates or other references have been changed. When Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip on June 14th, 2007, a lot of people were still shocked by their win at the ballot box the year before. And in the time since, the group's larger-than-life reputation has only grown more and more polarized. Oh, the terrorists of Hamas clearly intent on killing as many Israelis as possible. Hamas is a national movement, and it considers itself a movement that is concerned only with the Palestinian issue. Rockets rained on the outskirts of Jerusalem tonight, launched in anger by the Palestinian militant group Hamas from Gaza. Hamas doesn't fit neatly into the labels some try to fit them into. Armed group, political party, freedom fighters. The US, UK, and EU, among others, designate Hamas as a, quote, terrorist organization. Today, we're looking at the past, present, and future of Hamas. And most importantly, how it all affects the people living in Gaza. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To explore the complexities of this story, we reached out to two people, Khalid Al-Haroub, I am a professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Northwestern University in Qatar. I authored two books on Hamas, the Palestinian movement. And my colleague from AJ+, senior producer Mohammed Al-Safin. It's so difficult to talk about organizations like Hamas in the U.S. and in the U.S. media, because as soon as you start trying to explain what the motivations are, you're immediately looked at as some kind of sympathizer. Uh, it's easy to take the two-dimensional uh, terrorists are firing rockets without looking at the reasons or the motivations for that happening. We'll delve into a three-dimensional look at the issue with Mohammed in a bit. But first, I wanted to start with Khalid to understand the context that made Hamas what it is, the Palestinian cause. I lived this cause from the very, very beginning since my childhood in, in Bethlehem in one of the refugee camps. So I've been interested in everything basically to do with Palestinian politics since I started becoming aware of anything around me. And so I asked him about the question that comes up after every confrontation in Gaza. Every time there is an Israeli military assault on Gaza, like the one a few weeks ago, the main question 
in many media outlets is, why did Hamas fire the first shot? What is your take on that narrative? I think it's an unfair question to start with because this limits the whole conflict to one between Israel and Hamas. Hamas is a manifestation of Palestinian resistance. Throughout Palestinian history, resistance has been the main notion, deeply rooted in the Palestinian psyche, I would say. And when everything else fails to provide concrete answers to the Palestinians to do with their main rights, liberation, independence, refugees, Jerusalem, when all political attempts failed to deliver anything tangible on these aspects, the Palestinians at large, they would call upon resistance. If tomorrow we wake up without Hamas in existence, we will have another Palestinian movement basically doing the same. So I want to go on a mini history trip right now with the forming of Hamas, which happened in late 1987. What was Hamas intended to be and why was it founded? Hamas goes back, in fact, to what we could say a mother organization, and that is the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood. The Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood was founded in Jerusalem in 1946, and that is two years before the creation of the State of Israel. However, it continued to remain on the margin of the Palestinian politics over decades in 1950s, 60s, 70s, and even until late 1980s. And the reason behind this is their strategy. The strategy that the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood adopted was non-confrontational. They thought they needed to prepare the generations, as they called it, and they needed to Islamize the Palestinian society. And this is a prerequisite for their engagement with the wider battle against Israel. So in brief, they didn't use any armed struggle. Even when they were on the margins, though, they were doing things like building schools, hospitals, social services. Is that right? Exactly. They were heavily engaged in what I call the stage of institution building. So they were building schools, mosques, clinics, then spreading their social work. And that, in fact, provided them over time with a very strong social base. Now, in the year that you mentioned, in 1987, they decided to transform themselves into something more confrontational, more military. And they adopted a new strategy that is resistance and fighting against Israel. And this is when, in fact, we started to hear about them. So what was the context behind what was going on in Palestinian politics when Hamas decided to shift its intention. Yes. So by the end of 1980s, we have a deep sense of failure within the Palestinian nationalist movement. Khaled says the Palestinian Liberation Organization suffered multiple political setbacks, one after the other, and ended up expelled to Tunisia in 1982, far away from their community. In the early 90s, they decided to come to the negotiation table. The PLO decided to leave the armed struggle, saying our strategy now is to try to achieve our goals through peace talks. Here is PLO leader Yasser Arafat speaking at Harvard University in 1995. 
the Jews were our cousins. But now, they are not only our cousins. They are our neighbors, our partners. Exactly at the very same moment, you have Hamas saying, no, we want to adhere to the same strategy that is military and then continue uh, with this. So you have the rise of resistance on the side of Hamas and the decline of resistance on the side of the nationalist forces. Wow. By hearing it put like that, it's almost as if they shifted places. Exactly. In the absence of one, another one rose. That's so interesting. So fast forward to 2006, Hamas wins an election in Gaza. They're democratically elected. They begin running the territory soon after. Now, to many, this was an unexpected outcome of these elections, especially to those in the West and in the United States. How did they win that election? How did they become so popular? Yes, in 2006, they won the elections because of the continuous failure on the side of the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, Fatah, and other nationalist forces. They have started this so-called peace process in 1993. This process was supposed to end after five years with a Palestinian state independent and sovereign. So that was supposedly again in 1999. And yet, by that time, you have the Israeli settlements almost doubled in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza Strip. So within that period, within the period of the so-called peace process, in fact, the Palestinian people and their rights were losing So since 1993 until the year 2006, when the elections took place, I think the atmosphere was ripe for Hamas to cultivate its successes and what it has been doing over the past decade and a half. We wanted to hear more about how Gazans themselves feel about Hamas. That's where Mohammed al-Safin comes in. He lives in the U.S. but was born on the Gaza Strip. I was born there in the late 80s, one month after the first Palestinian uprising against the Israeli occupation took place. But I left Gaza when I was two years old, and I would return during the summers to visit up until the year 2000 when the second Palestinian uprising erupted. And after 2000, it became exceedingly difficult for anyone to get into Gaza. So in the 21 years since, I've only ever been able to enter Gaza once for two days in 2005. I have cousins I've never met. Uh, I've got aunts and uncles that I haven't seen in 20 years. I lost both my grandparents without being able to see them. Gaza is definitely a big part of who I am. I just haven't been able to go there because of the restrictions that the Israeli military have placed on people entering Gaza. So it's effectively split your family. Yeah. And when I did live in Palestine, I actually lived in the West Bank in Ramallah where my mom's from. I went to college over there, but the five years that I lived there, I wasn't able to visit Gaza, uh, even though Gaza is less than an hour drive away. Mohammed talks often about the importance of reporting on what happens in Gaza, even in times of so-called peace. The sad thing is the world really pays attention to Gaza only when rockets are being fired out of there. And so he's made it a mission to talk about Gaza at other times, too. Israel and Egypt have imposed a blockade on Gaza for almost the entire time that Hamas has been running it. I asked Mohammed for specifics about how that's played into Hamas's ability to govern. I mean, 
imagine trying to govern a prison. And that's essentially what you have in Gaza. There are no imports and exports. And imports and exports are the lifeblood of any economy, right? That means that industry has been decimated. Since the siege was put in place when Hamas took over, 70% of Gaza's industry has collapsed. You have periodic Israeli military assaults that cause widespread damage, but you're unable to rebuild. Sewage has been pumped into the sea in Gaza because infrastructure to maintain and build sewage treatment plants has not been allowed to enter. Electricity. The Israeli Air Force bombed Gaza's only power plant and then refused to allow supplies in to rebuild the power plant. And so in Gaza, they rely on electricity lines that come from Israel and Egypt, which are very limited and can't handle the growing population there. Whether we're talking about Hamas ruling the Gaza Strip or the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, ultimate control lies with the Israeli authorities. They control the airspace, they control the borders, they control security. And so whoever is in charge in Gaza is going to have trouble providing for the people. Elaborating on that, from your reporting and conversations with family that are still there, how would you lay out the complicated feelings people in Gaza have about Hamas? I, I think most people don't necessarily support Hamas's religious or political agenda. You know, Hamas, especially at the beginning of its rule, tried to impose certain customs and laws that people didn't necessarily like. But that's not the Hamas agenda that kind of dominates in Palestine. What dominates is Hamas's ability or willingness to take on Israel's occupation militarily. And I think people support that. People don't think that if Hamas gave up its arms that they will be granted freedom by the Israelis because the Israeli occupation and ethnic cleansing began decades before Hamas existed. Conversations about Hamas can be difficult, mm -hmm. a little bit awkward. It feels like you have to think very carefully about every single word that you say. And we work at the same network. Mm -hmm. And yet still, there was hesitancy, at least on my part, because I don't want to put you in a position where you come off as the Hamas scholar, <laughs> which of course you're not, and neither am I. But you agreed to come on. Can you talk to me about why it can sometimes feel a little awkward? Yeah. I mean, look, Hamas is a designated terrorist organization in the United States and in the European Union. And the thing about these designations is they flatten these movements. And so if you've been designated a terror organization by the United States government, most people don't want to hear about your motivations or your ideology or what it is you're actually fighting for. Because in most people's minds, terror is just mindless attacks on civilians. But if you look at the history of liberation movements, of anti-occupation movements, of anti-colonial movements, violence against civilians was often part of the equation, but it's not the totality of what the movement does or aspires to. One thing that I think is, is noteworthy about Hamas is they became famous in the 90s and early 2000s with suicide bombings. It became almost synonymous with that. The suicide bombings killed hundreds of Israeli civilians. Hamas has completely moved away from that strategy. What Hamas realized was that suicide bombings were probably not very effective on a strategic level anymore. And so they've developed a militia, a guerrilla army in Gaza instead. And I think if we want to end the bloodshed, and it's a very uneven conflict, as we know, 
But if anyone really cares about ending the bloodshed, we have to understand the motivations of the people who do fight and continue to fight, despite the odds being stacked against them. Khalid al-Haroub had also mentioned that strategy change with the suicide bombings when he spoke with us. He mostly researches Hamas from a political perspective, but I asked him to expand on how their military strategy is shifting, especially after the most recent confrontation in May. I think compared to other rounds of conflicts in 2014, 2012, and 2008, we can say that Hamas has performed with more sophistication and more nuance when it comes to implementing a military strategy. First of all, people in Gaza and even in the West Bank and elsewhere usually accuse Hamas of using their power and force only for either Gaza or for Hamas itself to retaliate for assassinations or to protect themselves, so on and so forth. Now, this time round, they used it for Jerusalem. Hamas issued an ultimatum and said, if you don't remove Israeli forces from the Temple Mount altogether, you will pay the price. And at six o'clock, there were the barrage of rockets. This is a new. So this is one. The second thing, they have been able to manufacture most of these rockets seemingly within the Gaza Strip itself. So these are locally manufactured. So this is another level of sophistication. The last point that I could mention is that the whole issue of disarming Hamas is now off the table. Nobody talks about this. Previously, the US, Israel, and sometimes even Egypt, they would stress on this demand. We need to disarm Hamas. Now, this is off the table. Nobody talks about this. You need to accept the reality as it is. This is their position now. And Khalid says that over the years, Hamas has also made some small concessions from its side of the metaphorical negotiation table. They moved, in fact, from the all overarching demand of liberating Palestine from River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea to this acceptance of a Palestinian state within 1967 borders with Jerusalem as capital of this state. Khalid says that originally, Hamas's charter stated that they wanted Palestine to span the entire region that it held before Israel existed. As of 2017, when they renewed their charter, they conceded that they'd accept a Palestinian state according to the borders that existed at the start of 1967. They refused to officially recognize Israel, but also tacitly seemed to accept its existence. So with that in mind, do you think that we'll ever see direct peace talks between Hamas and Israel at at some point? For a while, Israel had said, It would never negotiate with the PLO. And that was in the past, and obviously that changed. So do you think that same kind of change could happen here? Well, politically speaking and pragmatically speaking, we have seen this happening everywhere in the world. We have seen just recently the U.S. talking to Taliban. Uh, As you said, the Israelis vowed not to talk to the PLO for many years, many decades, in fact. The same goes with the African Congress and Nelson Mandela in South Africa, uh, with the IRA on, on Northern Ireland. So these kind of linguistic acrobats, they didn't last long. And then, in fact, at the end of the day, the realities on the ground, they impose themselves and they chart out new ways forward. 
and it's not highly unlikely for Israel and for the US to talk to Hamas. We have seen Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, saying we need to talk to Hamas indirectly. So I think, yes, uh, the reality is at the end of the day, part of the new politics is maybe, at least in the foreseeable future, indirect uh, talks with Hamas. So, Professor, final question for you. You have been to Gaza many times, but you and your family are from the occupied West Bank. Can you talk to me about your connection to the land? Uh, Yes, of course. I come from a village which is placed on the so-called Green Line. That's the internationally recognized border between Israel and Palestine. It's the border that was decided upon in 1949, soon after Israel was created. So two-thirds of the land of my village, including the land of my grandfather, was taken in the First War. And after that war, we were expelled to Bethlehem, to the makeshift camp at the time called the Hesha Refugee Camp. And myself, I was born there with my siblings. And then we moved to Jordan with the Second War. So I lived the tragedy of the Palestinians being expelled from one place to another and their land being confiscated. And this is why I am, as millions of Palestinians, uh, immersed in this cause. I go back and forth frequently to Palestine, to the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Uh, In Gaza, there is a different reality, of course, and yet they are very defiant, which is very amazing for many Palestinians. And I think if one could conclude this talk by one note, it's uh, the note of defiance that we have seen coming out from Gaza, not from Hamas only, but from the Palestinian people. They went to the streets celebrating what they thought of as a successful round of resistance. It's not a victory, of course, but many Palestinians think that these are kind of rounds and rounds. And I read on the other day some Palestinian from Gaza saying the Algerians fought France for 130 years. So this is a colonial conflict. It may take decades, but we are still here resisting and defying this occupation. And that's The Take. This episode was updated by Amy Walters. The original production team was Priyanka Tilvey, Alexandra Locke, Tina Kispe, Amy Walters, Nate Alvarez, Stacey Samuel, Nagin Oliai, Tom Fenton, and me, Malika Bilad. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nate Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>